Father, we ask for your wisdom as we go through 1 Timothy. Paul had so much of it for Timothy and and encouraged him in the work there in Ephesus. And I, I pray that we can learn from his example, his endurance, his steadfastness, his adherence to correct doctrine and pointing out what was error at the time. We ask that you would help us to be an example of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 18. And here is where Paul talks about the prophecies once made about him. In verse 18, it says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Now, the prophecies made about Timothy, we don't have the information as to what those exactly were, but we can do a little speculating on what they might have been. And it could have been that he was meant to accomplish certain tasks for the kingdom. They probably had some prophecy about that or that he might be a mighty warrior for Jesus Christ, a faithful pastor opposing false teachers and teachings. Or it could have been that he might assist many others in the faith or that his name and deeds might go beyond his life and be recorded for centuries to come as an example to pastors who are out there. Also, it would certainly stand to reason that these prophecies included the fact that he was called to engage in the battle for God's kingdom. And so something was made, he was was prayed over, a prophecy was made about him, or several prophecies, and they ended up coming true, and that's what Paul encouraged him in. Now, there was this story uh, that was turned into a film of this man, Lieutenant John Dunbar, And by accidentally leading his troops to victory in the Civil War, he was dubbed a war hero. He requested a position in the Western Frontier, and he was set out there to be all alone in this little cabin, this little uh, frontier stakeout for the United States Army. And he eventually abandons his position in the U.S. Army and accepts the way of life of his adopted Indian tribe. Now, the movie, you're probably familiar with it, was called Dances with Wolves, and it starred Kevin Costner. Now, he wasn't required to wage war, but simply manned the outpost, and he was required to hold the line and follow orders, which he failed at miserably. It was a fictional movie with political overtones, but there was a theme that is clear if you look at it closely, and that theme was... He did not engage in the activities he was assigned and he abandoned his post. And now that would be from the perspective of the United States military, but from the perspective of the film, it was completely political and the white man was a a despot in his actions and the Indians were righteous in their ways. And that's the political end of it, if you follow that. But there are also Christians who do not engage in the activities they were assigned, and many even abandon their posts. You know, Billy Graham, I forget the guy's name, who he went to college with. But Billy Graham went on to be a great evangelist, and the friend that he was in uh, college with abandoned his faith and turned away from God. And he, he did not engage in the activity to which he was called Uh, being a believer at the time or purported to be a believer. So Paul encourages Timothy to fulfill the prophecies made about him and engage in the battle. Now, this is for all pastors. In verse 18, again, it says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that you follow them. 
you may be able to, and there are three things here, fight the good fight, hold on to the faith, and a good conscience. So those three things, fight the good fight, holding on to the faith, and a good conscience. And we need to define what those terms are. Like, fight the good fight. Now, some people would say, well, we have these denominations and we need to make sure we go out and we evangelize those who are already saved, those who are already in a denomination and bring them to our way of thinking. And I don't think that that's really what Paul had in mind here because after all, there were no denominations at that particular time. There was just Paul, there were those who believed and those who wanted to change the course of doctrine. But there is this overarching battle that we are in that is being waged and that's the battle between Satan and God. That is going on constantly. And in the spiritual realm, we have no idea how intense it is or if it has been more intense at some times and less intense at others. But there is definitely Satan against God. Then there is evil against good, unrighteous against righteousness, and dark against light, and there is a battle for lost souls. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but when you go out witnessing and you go to talk to somebody, something eventually happens that interrupts your conversation. A phone call comes through. Uh, somebody walks up and say, hey, what's going on? And they want to engage in the conversation with you. And you really focus with the individual trying to make a point. You think that God is trying to reach the individual that you're talking to, but there's some interruption or uh, something else happens. Maybe there's a car accident outside. Just weird things happen when you try to engage in the act of evangelizing. Now, additionally, there's a battle for our own flesh and sinful nature that takes place. It's a personal battle. It's our will against God's will in our lives. For instance, you ever feel like you just don't want to go to church? Or you ever feel like you just don't want to study? You don't want to go to a Bible study? You don't want to open your Bible? You're just going to do what you want to do? You want to sleep in a little longer? You, you don't want to take the time to uh, engage in some spiritual activity like prayer? Like, I, I don't have time. There's that battle, and your flesh has to be subdued. Paul said he buffets his body to get it to conform to what Christ wants. So this fight is referred to as the good fight. Now, good can mean noble, excellent, or virtuous. Like those who would like to serve as elders in the church, it's a noble task to do that if it's done correctly. To get in there and be self-sacrificial, to make sure that the body is taken care of, that the direction of the church is good, the doctrine is okay. All of those things are excellent, they're good, they're noble, they're virtuous, and it's a virtuous fight against the enemies of the gospel. Now, the enemies of the gospel are the word, the flesh, and Satan, excuse me, the world, not the word, the world, the flesh, and Satan. Now, the world, Scripture tells us, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. Now, you have to define what that is. Now, I love things about the world. I love white sand. I love beach. I love turquoise water. I love sky. I love hiking. I, I love all of those things that the world has to offer. But I think he's referring to something a little more sinister, like power or strength one of the things that is um, looked up to in the world is power or strength or wealth and possessions or status or position or philosophy and beliefs 
those who seem to be worldly wise in the philosophy of this age, where's the philosophy of this age going? It is just going down the tank. It is not going where it should be. It's not righteousness. It's not goodness. Matter of fact, it is divisive. All the current political standings which are out there, the, the views which are out there, they're going to lead but nothing but destruction, mayhem, and disorder. And wealth and possessions. There's this run to get wealth. What's the latest thing on the Internet to get and hold on to? It's that Bitcoin, right? Not just the Bitcoin, but there's Ethereum, there's Dogecoin, all of them that are out there, and there's several smaller ones. And you just got to get in there and it's the ground floor and everybody's going to be going to cashless. And maybe you've seen the little memes that are out there where a guy, he's sitting there and it, it, it's just a little makeup box and he puts a dollar into the box and out pops $2. And he, oh, this is great. And this is representative of the, uh, the Ethereum or the Bitcoin. Then he has his phone and he puts his phone in there and out pops two phones and he puts them to the side with the two dollars and he thinks everything is just going great well he puts both phones in and both dollars and he waits for something to come out and nothing comes out and all of his money is gone and that's what's happening with these bitcoins these electronic currencies that are out there they're just going up and down based on what's on twitter or what's on the internet or instagram and it's so volatile it's going up and down but people are making this rush and then there's the stock market that's going up and down and you have these people i don't know if you remember the uh gamestop stock that was out there and just went up a couple hundred percent and that was all to go against the head fund managers which are out there that are trying to make money on failing businesses and so the people on reddit and the internet they say no let's go buy and make them uh have a call and and that they have to go buy and it doubles the amount that they have to buy if you understand any of that well they just did that with amc amc was running at two dollars a share and now it's up over $60 a share it went up 30 times and it's all because these guys are going against the big hedge fund managers and they're warring against each other and it's like if you're in the internet and the the um, <clears throat> stock market and all that and it, you can pull your hair out I mean you can just die worrying about what's going to go on with that and there's this grab for power and this grab for money and and if you're a winner i know one guy uh, i heard him in an interview he sold all of his current stock he borrowed money from his family he got every single penny that he had two hundred fifty thousand dollars and he invested it in one of these internet coins he made two million dollars in a matter of just a couple of weeks and you think, well, I can do that too. And so you rush and you want the money, you want the power, you want the possessions, all of those things, the status. He got interviewed on the radio and now he's a celebrity and people are asking him, well, what's next? And there's the way of the world, loving that. And God says, don't love the things of the world. Stay away from that stuff. You, you can invest wisely, wisely and you don't have to just run to that trend or to run to the trend of the philosophy of this world. And so God says, do not love the world or the things of the world. That is the enemy for the person who is a believer. It also tells us in scripture that the person who has many possessions, they don't sleep at night. They don't sleep at night worrying about, are they going to lose money? Are they going to hold on to money? Or do the things that they have, do they break down? I was uh, talking to my son the other day. We were up on the roof. And 
he just made mention we're just talking about several different things as we're pulling out the nails and he says you know dad when i was younger i wanted a lot i wanted like the snowmobiles because he lived up in lake tahoe the snowmobiles and the boats and you know the house and all of that he goes i don't want any of that now it's just a lot of work and you just got to keep pouring money into that stuff and it's just kind of a headache and i'm going wow this kid's really matured over the years you know he's changed his philosophy of life all the things that the world has to offer it's like they don't produce what you think it's going to produce which is contentment and then there's the flesh paul writes in romans seven eighteen, i know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good i do not find so he he wants in his spirit to do that which is right but his body says no you're not going to do that and it's the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh and the boasting the pridefulness that comes in life or what you have accomplished and god says crucify the flesh make sure you offer it as a living sacrifice every day then there's the devil first peter 5 8 be self-controlled and alert your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering so the devil wants to destroy he wants to kill he wants to do away with us he seeks to harm and annihilate the human race and so this is the good fight that timothy is called to be engaged in not only for the gospel but for personal personally his walk as well now this is the faith that we have also been handed down we have scriptures that are thousands of years old they've been handed down to us luke 1 1 says many have undertaken to drop the account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word so those who watched what jesus was doing in his ministry they wrote down and they passed it down to the generations we are beneficiaries of that but holding on to the faith also means that we're supposed to do what is in acts chapter 2 verse 42 if you're familiar with that it's fellowship breaking of bread prayer and the apostles doctrine i have said this particular verse several times the fellowship the prayer breaking of bread the apostles doctrine we're supposed to be engaged in the fight participating in all four of those if we say no we're not going to do that like for instance not being involved in fellowship not showing up and talking and fellowshipping with those who are around you talking about the things of god and just inspecting each other how you doing are you doing okay do you need prayer for anything and and then if we give up prayer or if we give up the breaking of bread like the communion that is here or even the uh, love feast that they used to have or the potlucks that type of thing and the apostles doctrine if you give up the doctrine you don't know what you're supposed to be doing you're just out there like in a boat without oars or a rudder you're just floating along according to the winds and the the currents of the water that's there and you have no way to get where you should get and so god tells us be engaged in the battle being participating in the things of the church and those who are uh, watching on the internet if it's possible uh, to get in church get in church and don't just simply float out there that fellowship is completely critical and when somebody chooses not to be involved if it is possible if they just say well i'm not going to do it 
First Corinthians tells us that the entire body of Christ suffers. In chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Now the body is made up of one part, not one part, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for the reason to cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not the eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason cease to be the part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If it were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts in the body. And he just goes on to tell us in verse 26, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So he tells us to be fitly joined together like a body, like a building, like a structure. And that's why he encourages the fellowship, the meeting together face-to-face of the body. And then holding on to a good conscience. So we're supposed to fight the good fight. We're supposed to make sure that we understand what proper doctrine is. And then holding on to a good conscience. Now, this good conscience is holiness, virtue, goodness, integrity, morality, uprightness, and forsaking wickedness. God calls us to do this. Now, if I ask for a show of hands, who's 100% effective in accomplishing all of those? No one can raise their hand. I, I was dealing with something yesterday. In my line of work, <clears throat> sometimes I have to go uh, and be at places. Nobody is there. And it needs to be that way so I can accomplish my job. They're commercial places and there shouldn't be anybody in the parking lot. And I'm working away and what happens? People pull in the parking lot. And I don't say in my mind, welcome. Trees here with shade. Just park your car right there, right where I have to work. And so in my heart, I'm just going, can't you see that I am working here and you pull right in. This is my heart. On the outside, I'm, you know. But on the inside, I, I'm just, I'm struggling with this. And so I had to talk to one person who was there and they got their dog out and they walked their dog all around and I said to myself, I hope you pick up after that dog. And I'm st- still smiling, you know. And, and everything was fine. It was all good. And then... Uh, she went back to her car and she got in the back seat of her car and was sitting with the dog in the back seat of the car with all the windows down and I'm starting up equipment and blowing and dust and everything's going can't you see that I I have to do this job nobody is here and so I, I go Lord help me and so I walked up and I said she goes am I in the way and I said, well, you know, I, I have to work around that area. I just wanted to let you know, you know, it'd be real helpful. She goes, okay. And, and she was great about it. And, and then she leaves and another guy pulls in. And, and so, you know, this flesh, this, it's not very virtuous goodness, you know, the uprightness, the forsaking wickedness. I am just struggling with this on the inside because I have a mess everywhere and I have to clean up this mess. Well, this guy pulls up, gets under another tree, puts his seat back, and he's watching some program on the internet. And his windows are down, and the wind's blowing towards him. And I got to start up this blower. 
I walk over to him. He goes, oh, no, it's okay. I'll just roll up the windows. You know, you know what I think to myself? I'm blowing everything on his car. You know? <laughs> and I'm going, no, I can't. I, you know, it's just the flesh. That's our bent. We go in that direction. We, we just want things our way, and we don't want to be of a benefit to somebody else. And, of course, what comes to mind? It's Philippians chapter 2. Consider others better than yourselves. And, you know, my flesh goes, stop it, you know. But on the inside, my spirit is saying, yes, that's how I'm supposed to act. Because God loves these people more than I will ever be able to comprehend. And so I need to be like Christ to them. And so the battle is won and lost on the inside. And I've always said, you know, just start driving around and you'll get a chance to exercise that uprightness and the morality and integrity on the inside. So forsaking behaviors of the flesh is what we're supposed to do when it says holding on to a good conscience. And those uh, types of behaviors are sexual immorality, the drugs, drunkenness, hatred, discord, jealousy, rage, selfish ambition, being divisive, greediness, stinginess, being argumentative, gossiping, and slandering, all of those things, God would say, no, that's not part of holiness. That's not part of virtue, and we're supposed to do away with that. Instead, we are to be learning the ways of the Lord by remembering the godly behaviors of those who have gone before us that we read about in Scripture. That's why we need to know what the scripture is all about. We need to be able to talk about the individuals and how they live their lives and what the result was. <clears throat> and that also leads to talking about the grace of God. In the youth group, I was talking to somebody about uh, King David. You know, they, they were feeling like they couldn't accept the grace of God. And I said, you know, look at King David. The man was a murderer and an adulterer. Look at Moses. The man was a murderer And God still chose to use him. And the salvation was a gift and it was by his grace. And so you get a chance to recall all of these stories about these individuals and how God dealt with them. And and that's beneficial to us. So holding on to a good conscience, knowing that, yes, we're unworthy, but by God's grace we have been saved and it is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. So those people who don't do that, those people who do not fight the good fight, they don't hold on to the faith, they don't exercise their ability to hold on to a good conscience, there's a problem that they can encounter, and we are susceptible to this as well. We can shipwreck our faith. Now, a couple people think it might mean different things, but we need to make sure that if we see that we're not holding on to this good conscience, we're not holding on to the faith, not exercising our faith constantly, that the shipwrecking is a real possibility. It says that in the second half of verse 19, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul uses this metaphor of shipwrecking, and he does this also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, where he says, Toss back and forth by the waves, and blown here there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. You imagine a ship. Now, he was on a ship several times. He's also shipwrecked. You know, he's lost at sea, and he was able to be saved from those. But he knows what it is to be in a small boat. 
Now, I've been in a small boat, and waves have been crashing uh, in that little boat, and we turned around and came back in towards Mission Bay, and it can be kind of precarious being in a small boat on the high seas, and you have to kind of know what you're doing. And if you don't, you can easily become shipwrecked. So what does this being shipwrecked mean? Well, imagine a ship. It's heading from one place to another. We, if we are in a boat or a ship, we're heading from one place to another. We have a destination in mind. And somehow we get hung up where we can't go forward. There could be a sandbar. There could be waves. There could be rocks. We get hung up. Now, it's still a ship, but it gets wrecked. And it's on the rocks. And it's no longer going to move. It's no longer going to sail. If we fail to hold on to the faith and a good conscience, we can become shipwrecked where we're never going to make it to our destination. Now, some people would say that destination is salvation. I disagree with that. The destination is fulfilling what God has in store for you, especially in context. Or the prophecies about Timothy are made. He has all these things he's supposed to accomplish according to these prophecies. And he has a chance to not do it unless he fights the good fight, holds on to the faith, and to a good conscience. So he's supposed to exercise himself in those areas, concentrate on it. And if we do that, then we have great confidence. If we don't, for instance, if you wake up every day and you're going, I'm so unworthy because the conscience has been torn and ripped because the behaviors you've been involved in, then you you shipwreck your faith. You're not resting in Christ at that particular point, you lose your confidence to walk with Christ. In First John chapter three, verse eighteen, it says, "Dear children, let us love with words or tongue, or not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth." This then is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What is the opposite? If our hearts condemn us, we don't have confidence before God. And we are in fearful expectation of loss of reward for our behaviors which are out there. And so if our ship wreck, you know, if our ship fails to reach its destination, we will not fulfill our purpose in this life. And the remnants are still there, and it's still a ship, but it doesn't fulfill what God has in store. That's why the fellowship of the saints, being involved in learning the apostle doctrine, that's why it's so critical. But so many people say, I'm not doing it. And you'll run across many people who say, I'm a believer. Where do you go to church? Oh, I don't. You know, or I like to go to several different churches. I like an eclectic mix. And they never sink their root deep, the roots deep. They're never able to flourish. They're never able to stand strong in the faith. You know, they, they probably have their political aspirations and expectations and belief overshadowing even their Christian beliefs. And your Christian beliefs are supposed to be paramount over everything. That's what guides everything. That's why we want to look at everything through the lens of the Bible, not through our political bent, not through the philosophy of the world. And God helps us in that if we know the word, if we're stuck in the faith, if we're saying we're not moving, we're staying where we are. And of course, First Timothy chapter 1, 3, I'm going to reread this again. 
I urge you when I was in Macedonia, stay here in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. This is what Hymenaeus or Hymenaeus and Alexander were involved in. Now, these two guys, the course that they took was probably, they were pagan Greeks. They got saved. They got into the church. Somebody got a hold of them and said you had to keep the Old Testament law, according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And then they started teaching things they ought not to teach, which just led to controversies. And because of that, Paul turned them over to be destroyed by Satan. In other words, it appears he kicked them out of the church saying, get out of here. You're not going to be teaching that stuff any longer. It presents problems. And so Paul was doing his job as an apostle. And we want to make sure we have a check on what is being taught in any Bible study or in church, any church service, or if any person comes in and starts teaching. We want to make sure we have a handle on that and we know what they're going to be teaching. Now, going on, chapter 2. It says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, there's a lot here. Our president is President Biden. Vice president is Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. And then you have Nancy Pelosi. And you have Chuck Schumer. And in some circles, those names are praiseworthy. In other circles, not so much. I imagine there's a little murmuring and some other words that are not so edifying being spoken about those individuals. But the Christian is supposed to pray for them. Now, if somebody says, you need to pray for President Biden, what does the flesh say? I'll pray for him, all right. You know, it's like the uh, precatory Psalms. Lord, destroy my enemies. May they never rise again. And may you wipe out their generations to come. You know, something like that. People want to pray along that line. But God asks us to pray for them that the citizenry may live a life that is peaceful. How does that happen? They start making the right decisions and ruling righteously. But if they don't rule righteously, what happens? You are not at peace. I I was listening to a local radio station this last week, and it's coming down the pike where you're going to be charged anywhere from one cent to four cents per mile that you drive in your vehicle on top of all the other taxes that you have to pay for that vehicle, whether it's gas tax or DMV. It is coming. They've been talking about it for a while. And some people were asking, well, how is this going to be enforced? And one way to do it is put something in your car. Another way to do it is you have to report uh, to the DMV when you sell your car or give an average every year of how much you drive. The other way is... You know these license plate readers? On a single police car, they can read up to 10,000 vehicles in one day, and they know where you are. And they can put that in a database, and they can tell you how many miles you have driven. And you know what my flesh thought right away? I'm covering up my license plate. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I just, you know, that's what the flesh does. And then I remember seeing little videos of how people, uh, they modify their cars with a license plate's flip. 
and they, they go like to another state or something like that when they're going through toll booths. Uh, there's little videos on the internet about that. And that's the flesh. And I think to myself, who are these people who are in charge? And they justify it by saying, well, we need to tax and really it's going to hurt the poor. And God has a special place in his heart for the poor. And when the rulers are really making a life difficult for the poor, God doesn't like it. And he takes action. And he could take action against the entire United States because of that, or the entire state, or the entire county. And I want to be able to bless the poor. And that doesn't mean just giving them what they want. It's providing for them what they need. But a tax like that on the poor who God loves is going to affect them detrimentally where they will not be able to drive their cars. But that is the goal. It's to get people out of their cars to where they can be controlled because there's this idea that we're going to destroy the climate because of our vehicles, the internal combustion engine, and we have to get rid of those and everybody has to go to electric even though it's going to require more pollution to power those electric cars. And they're not talking about that. Elon Musk even said, we don't have the infrastructure for that, but we're going to put all these electric cars on the road. Now, you think this is political. No, it affects the poor. And God tells us to watch out for the poor. This is a classic example where you take the scripture and you look at what it says, God loves the poor. Well, how can we benefit the poor? Don't tax them as much. Well, we don't do that, but this is really going to be a tax on the poor. And so that's how you take the Bible and you look at everything which is out there through the lens of the Bible. And if we do that, we're holding on to the faith. We're keeping a good conscience. We're fighting the fight. That's why I believe every Christian should be involved civilly, saying, no, this is wrong and this is right. This tax may be good, or this one may be very bad for us, or this particular policy in the school may be good, or it may be bad for us. And so it is our job to stand up and say what is righteous and what is not righteous and be able to pray for the leaders, whether it's Biden or Governor Newsom, uh, who is there. We can pray for them that they would treat the citizenry as God would have them be treated. And also, like I said, it's for peaceful and quiet lives. Uh, For instance, if they punish evildoers, evil is suppressed. It does say that in Ecclesiastes 8.11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Have you seen a rise in crime as a result of the leaders passing ordinances and laws to benefit the criminal? And that's exactly what scripture has to say. But when somebody who is in a position of authority passes a law that brings uh, a little anxiousness to those who do evil, well, that is good. Proverbs 21.15 says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. And that's exactly how it should be. I I heard a, a double murderer is going to be released from prison. I think it's in California. And it's like, why are you going to just release these guys? They're a danger to society. But it's when there is a good governor, a good president, a good mayor, then it will be well for us. And that's why God tells us to pray for those in authority. And it will enable us to live in all godliness and holiness. If the rulers are evil... 
don't you prepare for an evil onslaught that you, you kind of see the trouble down the road and you prepare for it, but even some believers go a little overboard. How many guns do I need to purchase? <clears throat> how, much, how much ammo do I need to have? Can I buy a ghost gun? Uh, all of these things start coming up because I need to protect my stuff or I need to protect my life. And we end up making some incorrect decisions along that line. And, you know, those who seek to save their lives will lose it. And those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will find it. And, and so we, we want to make sure we're using wisdom. Yes, to protect ourselves, that's all good. That is very good. But if we just go overboard, that is not good. And God requires that we have a balance on this. Now, even Benjamin Franklin knew this. <clears throat> Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. So if we see some injustice that is going on out there, we have to be as outraged as those who are suffering the injustice in order to turn the tide, to bring the ship around, to have things be right. If we aren't as outraged as those who have suffered the injustice, then nothing will be done and we will slide towards Gomorrah. And we need to support those who are seeking justice, so to speak, and not social justice. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior that we would pray for those in authority who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in his proper time, and for the purpose, this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So digressing here a little bit, this idea of ransom. <clears throat> when you see ransom, the word ransom, it means you have to pay something to get something back. Uh, the ransomware, which is out there, it shut down the beef industry. Uh, what, two weeks ago or a week ago? And the chicken and beef and pork has all been interrupted, which are going to raise the prices of all of those things because there's going to be a shortage. And then there was a, some power link um, um, pipeline that was shut down by these ransomware hackers, apparently from Russia, that were in there. And they had to pay like $5 million dollars. And they weren't protected against this. So we, we think a ransom, hands up, you're going to give me your money. It's like stealing from someone, and that's exactly what it is. And is that what Jesus did? He paid this ransom, he, who gave himself as a ransom, verse 6, for all men. Well, who was he paying? Did he have to pay to God the Father a ransom to redeem us? I, I think we need to look at it in this light. God is a righteous judge and he judges all sin and all sin all the time has to be punished. And the way sin is punished is by life. You have to give your life. You have to give your blood. Life is in the blood. You have to have your blood spilled for that to make atonement. Now, if the blood is impure or the sacrifice is impure, it will not be sufficient to pay the price. In God's economy. That's why the blood of bulls and rams could never take away sin. It could only cover it. 
Otherwise, if that was the case, if the sin could be taken away, we'd still be sacrificing animals on the altar. But it wouldn't. So God set up this thing to point to Jesus who would give his blood ultimately. Now, being God, his blood is perfect. Since his blood is perfect, it will cover the sins. It will wipe them away for anybody who asks for it. All of humankind, throughout all of history, those who were existing before Jesus would look towards his sacrifice. We look back to his sacrifice. We are justified by faith in the sacrifice that he offered. And so what was required was life for the sin. The blood had to be spilled for the sin. Now, why is it that way? I have no idea why God set it up that way. But it's the only way that sin can be forgiven. Jesus Christ, being the one who was sinless, had the perfect blood, which was used to satisfy the requirement of the punishment. That's why it is called a ransom, because there was a price that had to be paid in order to redeem us. Now, what takes place when that blood is offered is we have been propitiated. That's a theological term. I think it's in the King James, but not in too many other uh, versions of the Bible. But what that means is to gain or regain favor. And so once the ransom is paid, Jesus Christ was our propitiation. He is the one that opened up the door for us to regain favor with God the Father. That's what it means when a ransom is paid. So the world is under a curse because of sin. There is no way that sin can be forgiven because the entire human race is under this curse. That's why Jesus had to become a man, fully man, fully God. And that's how the process takes place. So to apply all of this, we know that we are supposed to fight the good fight, not just for pastors, but everyone needs to fight the good fight. You need to be engaged. You need to be prepared. You need to be holding on to the faith. You need to understand what the faith is. You need to understand propitiation. You need to understand ransom. You need to be able to explain it to somebody. If you talk to somebody who is outside uh, of the Christian faith, and you said, yeah, animals had to be sacrificed, they would say, that is just completely barbaric, but they don't understand the theology behind it and how God requires a sacrifice for sin. But we need to be able to hold on to the faith and a good conscience. We need to walk in holiness. And that's very difficult for us because our flesh says no, and our spirit says yes, and there's that constant battle like in Romans chapter 7. So those who reject that offer of salvation, they have no excuse because God offers it to everyone. Romans chapter 1 tells us that even though this salvation is available to every single person, it's only by the individual's rejection of that sacrifice that they go to hell and they are punished for it. Now the question remains, well, why doesn't God just destroy that individual where they are no longer conscious and they don't exist forever? To be a human, you have to have DNA that says you're a human. All living things have DNA. We have DNA. What else makes us human? Well, we have the heart, we have the organs, we have all of that that makes us human. 
Well, what about a soul? Well, you have to have a soul in order to be human. We are created in the image of God. If we're created in the image of God to be human, we are also going to be eternal. That's part of the makeup. You can't take away or change all the DNA and any longer be called, quote, human. And by the way, they're doing uh, experiments on that, making animal-human hybrids. That's the island of Dr. Moreau, if you're familiar with science fiction. But they're doing that uh, as we speak. And so they're, they're changing the DNA of creatures which are out there and human beings. But that is part of our makeup. If you want to be a human, you are going to be an eternal being. You're going to have the DNA. And God honors that creation and will not destroy it. That's why there is hell. And that's why the individual lasts forever, even in hell. Whether it's in hell or in heaven, it is for an eternity. So recall to mind Lieutenant John Dunbar in Dances with Wolves. The man was an individual who was conscripted by his military to go out to an outpost. He forsook his position and took up with, quote-unquote, the enemy who was out there. He forsook everything that was ahead of him that he was supposed to fulfill and said, no, I'm not going to. Now, relating that to our walk, are we going forward or are we having our faith shipwrecked? where we are no longer going to be going forward. You know, there was another John Dunbar that lived in 1804 to 1857, which I'm sure they probably got the name for the movie, and John Dunbar, Lieutenant, uh, that was in Dances with Wolves. But this particular John Dunbar, for 20 years, was a Presbyterian missionary to the Pawnee Indians. And he wrote a book, The Pawnee Language, and he lived and ministered with that tribe. And he would go on the buffalo hunts with that tribe. And 20 years of his life, he spent doing that. He stayed with the faith. He watched his life, his holiness that was there. He was engaged in the fight. So there's the one John Dunbar who walked away, and there's the other John Dunbar who followed Christ and went to a tribe that needed Christ. Which one are you? Which John Dunbar are you? Are you engaged in the battle? Are you holding on to the faith? Are you walking in holiness? Or are you saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to allow my faith to be shipwrecked. It's just an encouragement. My prayer for all of you is that you don't have to worry when you wake up. You're not constantly calling yourself unworthy because of the sin that is amassed in your life. That you're able to turn to Christ and say, well, thank you for the gift of salvation. What would you have me do today? And you walk in that newness of life. That is what Paul is telling Timothy to do here. Stay engaged, stay in the battle. Now, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to uh, receive communion if um, Kim would come up. She's going to play a song, and we're going to recall how Christ has saved us from this penalty of death and the ransom that he paid. We're going to remember that payment, that ransom, by receiving the communion. And if you recall, the way we're going to do it is the first rose, you come up towards the center, and you walk all the way around to the outside, and you walk back into your seat. And so as Kim is playing this song, If you need a little strength, it would be a good time to call out to God and say, God, you know, I I feel maybe I'm 
shipwrecking my faith or I'm on that course and there's some precarious waters which are out there and you need some help, just ask him for that. If, if you've been denying Christ this whole time of what he wants for you, just say, God, help me to walk in the newness of life. That's what we're supposed to do when we recognize the body and blood of Christ. We're to recognize his goodness, his sacrifice for us, and our state or condition in which we dwell in. And if we need to clear up anything, this is the time to do it. So as Kim plays and the center lights are dimmed, just go ahead and talk to God a little bit about your condition.